Um, <laughs> growing up as a kid, um, I had a brother and sister, and we always, you know, our neighborhood was full of other kids. For some reason, they always came in threes. I couldn't understand why every family seemed to have three kids, but it worked out quite well. Uh, we always got together, we played ball. We'd have a tournament all summer long. This family would play this family, and three on three, just play ball all day long. We'd have like a season, then we'd have a World Series at the end. We'd play. Yeah, we, we did it up right. And um, we were kind of arrogant little kids. You know, we, you know how kids are when they get together sometimes. And, um, how many of you ever heard these following sayings? He talks a good game. You ever heard that? He's all talk and no do action. This is one of my little brother's favorite ones. He was, he'd say, you need to put up or shut up. That's what he'd tell the other families in the neighborhood. You know, you're here playing us today. You need to put up or shut up. And it was all in fun, you know, but uh, sometimes it was, it was pretty serious. All these sayings indicate what? There's a lot of talk going on, but there's no action to support the talk, right? That's the whole idea behind those. In verses 14 through 26, James is very concerned that there are some who may profess to be a follower of Jesus without, without actually being a follower of Jesus. James is concerned by an attitude that sees faith as merely a verbal profession. In these verses, James exposes phony faith for what it is. And at the same time, he calls for a return to genuine faith. The kind of faith through which sinful men are justified. The kind of faith that makes sinful men right with God. Verses 26, uh, excuse me, 14 through 26 present us with a couple of issues here. A couple of problems. There's a, there's a practical problem. And we're going to talk about that pretty much the whole sermon. But there's a, there's a theological problem. Here in James as well. The practical problem is that there are too many people in the church whose lives don't match their profession. It happened back in the New Testament days as well as it happens today. Um, people have raised their hand, they've walked an aisle, they've prayed a prayer and professed to believe in God and His Son Jesus, but nothing has changed in their lives. Nothing. They still have worldly priorities and still live self-centered lives. And if they weren't seen walking into church, no one would know they were professing Christians. They seem to view faith as a Sunday morning pill that will hopefully vaccinate them against life's difficulties until it's a more convenient time to show up again. The separation between what one says and how one acts is the practical problem that's going on here. That's what James is talking about. That there's a theological problem that we can't see, but there is one. Here, here it is. How is a person made right with God? Is it by faith or is it by works? Verses 14 through 26 are theologically significant. And at the same time, they're the most controversial part of the letter of James. This passage has caused people headaches down through the years of the church. Why is that? Look at verse 24. We're not going to skip everything else and go to 24. But I want to point out something here. James says, you see that a person is justified by works, what he does, and not by faith alone. 
That verse has caused a lot of problems theologically. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the doctrinal statement for Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists have gotten together and they've looked at the Scriptures and in particular categories, God, man, sin, salvation, the Trinity. They've said, here's what the Bible says about these things. And there's a lot more there than what I just called off. But the Baptist faith and message says this, there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. It's pretty clear, is it not? Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 28 says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, or he had faith in God, and it, faith, was counted to him as righteousness. So which is it? Was Abraham justified by faith alone, as Paul says, or was he justified by works and not by faith alone, as James says? Which one is it? Do Paul and James contradict one another? Which one are we to believe? That's been the, that's been the, the theological problem down through the history of the church. Some people, even back in the Reformation period, um, some of you may have heard of the theologian Martin Luther. He didn't particularly like the book of James. He said it contradicted Paul. Uh, so wh- what are we to believe here? On the other hand, if they don't contradict them one another, how, how do we reconcile what appears to be a contradiction? If they don't contradict one another, how do we reconcile these things? Paul is talking about how a person is accepted before God. Paul is speaking of the universal, worldwide need of the gospel. All of mankind needs the gospel of grace. They all need the forgiveness of sin because they do not measure up to the standards of God. The Bible tells us that all men fall short of the glory of God. They need God's gospel, God's grace through Christ. And Paul argues that the way the gospel is applied to a person rules out any kind of boasting on their part. We cannot boast as believers in our salvation. We did not do nothing to gain our salvation, to merit our salvation. Paul tells us that justification, being made right with God... Results when a person is declared righteous because of what Jesus has done, not what we've done. And being made right with God is a result of a person placing faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus brings about the righteousness of Jesus being applied to a person's life. When we hear the gospel, when we respond the way the gospel tells us to, we repent and put our faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous. God takes the righteousness of Jesus and He puts it to your account. Praise God. And you're saved by faith in Jesus. It's applied to a lost person's life. What makes that person acceptable to God? When you get the righteousness of Jesus, God looks and He doesn't see your filthy righteousness no longer. He sees who? He sees Jesus' righteousness applied to your life. On the other hand, James is talking about something totally different from Paul. That's how we can separate these two. James is speaking to the issue of hypocrisy in the church. That's what James is talking about. There are some people who claim to believe, but their lives do not reflect saving faith that Paul talked about. Do you see that? Paul talks about saving faith. James says there's hypocrisy in the church when it comes to that faith. James is dealing with the issue of real faith versus false faith. Living faith versus dead faith. James is getting at how to know whether a person really has saving faith or not. For James to be justified to have saving faith means a person demonstrates the reality of that faith. For Paul, 
faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin is salvation. Repenting and trusting in Christ. Good works, Paul says, doesn't bring about salvation. We're all clear on that. I think we understand that, right? That's what Paul is telling us. We nod our heads, or at least I hope we do. As Christians, yes, that's what Paul says. But James says, true saving faith in Jesus is evident, demonstrated by the way a person lives their life. Do you see the difference? James is not contradicting Paul. Paul is not contradicting James. It's demonstrated by the way a person lives their life. During the revival, we heard this, right? Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. That's a pretty clear-cut way of demonstrating faith in Christ. Those things are evident in a person's life. Works give evidence of faith in Jesus. The faith that Paul speaks of. James says, that faith that Paul speaks of? Absolutely. But here's how we know whether we have the faith that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Now the theme of James has been this. We talked about this. But I just want to remind us, is this, the test of genuine faith. All through the book of James, James is given these tests to apply to see if faith is real. To see if we have saving faith, which Paul speaks of. Faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I want to clarify something here. I, I know the book of James is not written for the purpose I'm about to express, nor am I preaching the book of James for this purpose, is to cause people who are believers to doubt their salvation. That is not what's going on here. For one thing, those of us who are believers can look at the examples James gives us and we can look for blind spots in our life to say, Oh, yes, that's crept into my life. I need to repent of that and get that out. But overwhelmingly, James is looking at those who profess faith in Jesus and going, Let's see some proof of that. Let's see some proof of that. And most people go... Don't judge, right? Don't judge. You run to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, you say, look, don't judge. But you fail to read down toward verse 5 where it says, who? You hypocrites. Don't judge. Or you'll be judged with the same judgment which you place on others. The main idea here today is this. Faith is tested by producing good works. should be on your handout there. Faith is tested by producing good works. Saving faith reveals itself in works. Look at your handout there. You have the outline, verses 14 through 17. It talks about a faith that is worthless. A faith that is worthless. Look at verse 14. And it's pretty easy to figure out how that comes. What good is it, my brothers? James starts out with a question right away. I don't know about you, but questions have a tendency to get my attention. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Then here comes the big question. Can that faith save him? Again, James asks two questions. What good is it? It is faith. What good is it? Faith. James is questioning a certain faith. A faith that what, church? Does not have works. That's the faith he's questioning. James deals with the situation of someone who claims to have faith, but who does not have any works to prove his faith. His focus is on merely a claimed faith. Notice it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone what? Says. Claims to have faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? That second question there, 
is a real, I don't know about you, but that, that, that really grabs my attention. Can that faith save? Notice a real key word. Can, what's the next word? That faith. What faith is he talking about? The faith that does not what? Work or give evidence. Can that faith save? Can a faith that does not produce works, can that faith save him? Can that faith make him right with God? Can that faith justify him? Bring about forgiveness in his life and reconciliation to God. James is concerned about people who claim to be Christians but who are not Christians. That's what James is talking about here. James is concerned about people who have made a decision, prayed a prayer, signed a card, walked an aisle, joined the church, or declared themselves to be Christians, but their lives do not show the marks of real faith. That's what he's talking about. He looks at that life and he says, I see no consistent, visible evidence of a life of faith in that person. I don't see it. As far as James is concerned, that person is not a Christian. James bluntly questions that person. Do you see what he's doing there? Can that that faith save? No, it cannot save. There are many today, I think, who have such a faith. In their mind, they believe the truth about God, about man, about the world, and about the future. And if you ask them, do you believe in God? They say, well, sure, I believe in God. If you ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? The answer is, a lot of times in, in our context, is what? Yes. You can even ask, was He crucified and raised again on the third day? And they'll say, yeah, I believe that. I, I, I heard that. Or some will even claim, you know, I've heard this. Preach, I believe everything in the Bible. But if it never goes beyond the head, argues James, it remains only a claim. And if it never changes his life, then that faith is deader than a doornail. It means nothing. Profession of faith does not equal possession of faith. Let me say that again. Profession of faith does not equal possession of faith. Some people are professional professors. Not professors in the university. Professional professors of faith claim, saying. They can say all the right words and convince anyone that they're on God's side, but when it comes right down to it, they may be fooling everyone but God. Judas is a perfect example. He convinced everyone of his fellow apostles that he was a loyal follower of Jesus. Did he not? And they elected him as what? The treasurer. Now, Miss Sandra... Don't read anything in here, okay? Thank you for what you do. I'm not calling you Judas. And even after Jesus plainly told them that one of them would betray Him, remember that? He told them. Not one of the apostles suspected Judas, did they? What was their response? Is it me? They didn't all look at Judas and go, it must be Him. Not one of the apostles suspected Judas, but who who, who knew? Jesus knew. Look at verses 15 and 16. Here James gives us an illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, here's another question. What good is that? What did he just say back up there in verse 14? That faith is what? Can it save? It's, it's dead. What good is that? And he, he gives us an example, an illustration. 
James says, suppose your brother or sister, a fellow Christian, comes along and they're distressed, they're in need of food and clothing, and you say, I'll pray for you, brother. God bless you, friends. Stay warm and eat hearty. That's what that's saying there. And you do nothing to help him. James says, what good is that? You see the sort of the, the tone of his voice there? In other words, that faith is useless. When someone comes to you and they ask, and they, they're, they're, they're in distress or needing help, and you just say, I'm going to pray for you, brother. God bless you, and I hope everything turns out right. James says, what good is that? You see the comparison he's making to a faith that doesn't have works? James says, such actions are just like the person in verse 14. It's like the person who claims to have faith, but he doesn't live it out. He doesn't live out because he does not have it. That's why he does not live it out. In verse 17, James tells us to learn something. There's going to be three times when James tells us to learn something. Here's the first one. Look at verse 17. James draws a conclusion here. James says, learn this. So also. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just like the words in verses 15 and 16, which are totally worthless, so also is the faith of a person who merely claims faith, and yet he has no works to demonstrate that faith in his life. Do you see the example there, the illustration? How we respond to someone in need? What good is that? What good is the faith that does not demonstrate by works faith in Christ? Look at verses 18 and 19. And on your handout, here's what we have. For the outline. A faith that is wicked. A faith that is wicked. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith... I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here in verse 18, there's a lot going on here in this verse. Again, this is a passage of Scripture, and I don't have the time to go into details. It's caused people fits when it comes to trying to discern in the original language what exactly is going on here. And I'll save you all that muddy water, okay? Um. James here is arguing with uh, an imaginary objector. Okay? Yo, you ever been somewhere and there's a heckler in the crowd? Somebody's always like, eh, that's, that's who he's, I think that's what he's doing here. There's somebody, maybe not a heckler, but someone who's objecting. Various English translations read differently. What I read here, if you've got any other translation than the ESV, they're all kind of different. But here's what James appears to be saying. Someone, notice he says there, but someone will say, an imaginary objector says to James, I have faith. I really do believe, James. I believe the truth. I believe Christ is the one who says He is. I believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But the objector also says that a person can have genuine faith without works. That's what the objector is saying. Notice what, you have faith, I have works. James responds in verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is saying, in effect, show me. Don't tell me. Show me that you believe that Christ is Lord. Every believer must have faith, and every believer must have works. 
In fact, the only way to prove that faith is ever present is by the change it produces in a person's life. Wouldn't we all agree to that? I want to make sure you don't misunderstand this point. James is not anti-intellectual. He's not saying the mind has no part in this. Faith must be rooted, first of all, where? Here. But if our faith goes no further than our minds, it's dead. It's worthless. That's what he's saying. As well, someone might even argue that faith must have an emotional element. And I would say, yes. I would be the first to say that faith begins in the mind and it also affects the heart. I don't know about you. I was sharing with someone earlier. When I begin to think about what happened to me on the day that I got saved, emotions well up in me. Absolutely. Genuine faith does something to the heart, folks. We, we can't deny that. But even with emotion, a person might still have a phony faith. And why is that? Because faith that involves only the intellect and emotions is still useless. Look at verse 19. Here's James's proof of that. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons, says James, have an intellectual faith and they have an emotional faith. That's what he's saying here. They know there's a God. They also know that Jesus is the Son of God. You read Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and you'll see that. And they know He's coming again to judge the wicked and send them a place of punishment again. Read Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, and you'll see the demons expressing that. They believe all the facts about the Bible. They have an intellectual faith that is probably second to none. But there's also an emotional dimension to their faith. When they think about God, what do they do? They shudder. They tremble. There's the emotional part of it. The demons believe with their minds and with their emotions, but it still doesn't do them any good. That's what James is saying. Their minds got it. It affects them emotionally. But what? That means absolutely nothing. Their faith doesn't save them or gain them a place in God's presence for all eternity. That faith is worthless. As well, there are some people who, uh, in addition to believing the Bible facts about God and about Jesus, and some people feel kind of this warm feeling toward God. They shed tears of sorrow. They may even lift their hands and voices in emotional praise on occasion. There's nothing wrong with that. But a person can be enlightened in the mind and even stirred in the heart and can still be lost. Here's some application. James is not saying we need to add works to our faith if we want to get saved. Okay? Does everybody understand? He's not saying add works in order to be saved. He's saying that true faith is what drives our actions in life. Our lives, our actions reflect whether or not we really have true saving faith. If you're in your choices, in your priorities, in your actions, in your relationships, and especially in your relationships in the Christian community, and I'm talking about the church, you show whether you really do have true saving faith. You can believe all the right things about God and still be a pagan. I'm not going to call you a demon. I'll call you a pagan. Because saving faith involves more than just correct notions about God. You say you believe in Jesus. If that's the case, you will do what you believe. You will act on what you believe. Jesus said that your actions are a reflection of what? What's in here. 
Your actions, your life must demonstrate the faith you claim to have. If there are no works, there is no saving faith. Verse 14, what good is it? Verse 17, is dead. I think that's pretty clear. This past Friday, unless you were a heavy sleeper on drugs or in another part of the state... Everybody knows what happened Friday, right? Storm. Trees across the road. Grill covers. I have no idea where it's at. If you find a grill cover somewhere, it's mine. You don't have to get it. Just say, I've seen it in a tree in Castalia. I'll go there and get it. Uh, trees across the road. Power lines are down. And... Um, you know, I, I'm kind, and some of you had somebody do this. I call you, and I say, look, if, if you want to get here, you need don't come by my house because it's impassable. You say, okay, I believe you. But what, what, what do you do if you get in your car, and you're going to your destination, and you just go right by my house? Did you believe what I said? <laughs> what proves you didn't believe what I said? Your actions. You didn't believe a thing I said. If you'd have believed it, you'd have went around the other way and went to your destination. You believe, but you don't act as if you believe. See, we can tell people all day long, I believe. But I've come to realize, reading the Bible, that believing reflects action based on what I believe. Look at verses 20 through 26. In your handout there, we see a faith that is worthy. A faith that is worthy. Look at verse 20. He starts with another question. Do you want to be shown? And then he's not very nice. You foolish person. I won't tell you where I come from, what people say. You moron, you idiot. Do you want me to show you? That's sort of the way. They're pretty blunt where I come from. That's the way they, they say things. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James, what does James say? You just want me to show you? You're one of them kind that says, yeah, okay, well, let me show you. James in verse 20 is still addressing this imaginary objector in verse 18. But someone will say, he's still talking to that guy. Now, let's not forget what James has said in verse 17. So faith, excuse me, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. No gray area there, right? Faith without works is what, church? Dead. That's pretty clear, right? James says here in verse 20 to the objector, Do you want me to prove to you, foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Do you want me to prove that to you? How is James going to prove his argument? The next verses. James illustrates his argument, verses 21 through 26. He points to Abraham and Rahab as examples of how real faith and works go together. <coughs> Abraham and Rahab are held up as examples to us of what James wants us to do. There should be actions in our life based on faith. Verse 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar... You see that faith was, what's the next word to make sure we're awake? Active. Along with His works. And faith was completed. 
by His works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. How do we know he believed God? He acted. And it, faith with works, was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham trusted God when the day came in Genesis 22. Have we heard Genesis 22 lately? Y'all remember the Bible? Yeah? Abraham trusted God when that day came in Genesis 22 when God told him this, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. What did Abraham do? Yes. And the author of Hebrews, read this later on, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, tells us that Abraham so believed the promise of God that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if necessary to fulfill his promise to him. Abraham believed that. I'll, I'll sacrifice him because I believe if that's the case, if it gets to that point, God will raise him from the dead. Which church is a picture of us to who? Jesus. That's what's going on there. What does verse 21 say about Abraham? He was what? Justified by what? His works. When he offered up Isaac his son. Now in Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 it says there that God tested Abraham by commanding him to offer up his son. God did what to Abraham? He what? He tested him. What was God testing? He was testing his faith. What was he looking for? Obedience or works that prove that Abraham's faith was not dead or useless. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God need proof? You and I need the example of Abraham. God didn't need proof. God already knew. What does verse 22 tell us? Look at verse 22. Faith was, what's that word again? Active. What else does verse 22 say? Faith was what? Completed, meaning, well, it was completed how? By works, which logically the reverse of that is if there's no works, then faith is what? It's not completed. It's not perfected. In other words, Abraham was declared to be righteous by God by faith, and his faith had been shown to be real by acting on that faith. That's what James means by faith was completed. What was the result? Look at the result of that. He was called what? A friend of God. What's the logic of that, church? I can not be a friend of God? Abraham was a friend of God because he acted on his faith. Look at verse 24. James says to this, second time, here's a second, learn this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is not justified. He's not declared right with God just by what he believes and by what he says. He's justified. He's made right with God by faith that works. Then in verse 25, James tells the story of Rahab. Notice what it says. In the same way was not... What's the next word? Also, Rahab, the prostitute, Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. The story of Rahab is found in Joshua, chapters 2 and primarily chapter 6. Rahab, summarized, rescued the Israelite spies and she enabled Joshua to conquer Jericho. That's what's going on there. She risked 
her life based on what she believed. Do you get the picture? She risked her life based on what she believed. And James says that's what faith does. It acts on what it believes. Rahab believed God. That this was the people of God and that God was... This was His people. And she put faith in God, but she acted. She risked her life based on what she believed. She acted on that. So what's James's point? If Abraham and Rahab merely professed faith in God or merely felt warmly toward Him, but never acted on that faith, their profession would have been empty and worthless. Their faith would have been dead also. I started out by talking about a theological contradiction. I want to go back to that and just make sure I've not left any loose ends. When Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4 or 5 that we're justified by faith alone, he means that the only thing that saves us from sin is faith in Jesus. When James says in James 2.24 that we're not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith which justifies does not remain alone. So there's no contradiction. These two positions, I think, actually complement one another. Faith alone unites us to Christ for righteousness, and the faith that unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. Saving faith has works. And it must do so, or it is what, church? It is dead. It is useless. It is a faith which does not justify. It is a faith that does not save the sinner. Now, I want to say this about good works. I want to acknowledge it's possible to have good works without having biblical faith. Would you agree to that? We probably know atheists or agnostics who do commendable works and show kindness to their fellow man, right? You probably know some people like that. But their works are totally worthless in helping them find God. In fact, Isaiah says such works are what? Filthy rags in God's sight if they're not accompanied by true faith. There are people who think they have faith even though they produce no visible signs or evidence. James says, be warned, saving faith is more than words coming out of the mouth. Words only have value when actions back them up. We must walk the talk, James says. The bottom line is this, friends, is that biblical faith and godly works cannot be separated. How, how many of you, uh, and I meant to look at the one in the fellowship hall, and I forgot, the old coffee percolators, percolators, that have, what do they have on the top of them? A little what? A little glass knob? You know why that's there, right? There's coffee going on. That's why that window's there, you know. So you don't take the top off and look in, you can that wouldn't be good. It's dangerous to look into a percolator to see how much coffee it contains while it's percolating, right? They also, some of them have this little glass on the side of them, right? This little window. If you want to know how much coffee is in there, what do you do? I look at the window. I don't need to take the top off. It indicates that there's coffee in the pot. If there's no coffee in the window, you can be confident there's no coffee where? In the pot. Right? Just like the percolator, there's also a glass, a window on our heart, and it's the gauge of good works. 
You can tell what's in the heart by looking at that gauge. The problem is that we all like to check the sight glasses of other people's lives, but God's Word urges us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How can we know for sure if we have saving faith? That ought to be a question we are asking right now. How can we know for sure? Let me give you some practical ways of knowing that. First, do you believe the gospel with your mind? Notice I said we can't dismiss the mind. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says the following, But this gospel, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I've received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What's in that passage there? That's the gospel. Jesus died, buried, rose again for our sins. You've got to believe that in your mind. Alright? Second, has the truth of the gospel touched your emotions? I don't mean have that you have become a really emotional person, but is there a genuine sorrow over sin in your life? Is there joy when you gather with other believers in a setting like today to worship? Does that bring you joy? Or does it bother you when you consistently choose not to gather with other believers on Sunday morning? Notice I said the word consistently. Not when you miss occasionally, but when you consistently choose not to gather with other believers. Does that bother you? Is there sorrow over lostness in the world? The Galilean people in northern Africa, Sudan, three million people have never heard the gospel. Does that bother us? Does it bother us that across the road from us or up the street, across the field, there is someone who is lost and will die and spend eternity in hell separated from God? Does that bother us? Third, and most importantly, has your profession of faith in Christ affected your life? Has it touched your emotions? Has it affected your life? Has it made a difference in how you live? When you compare your life today with your life before you trusted Christ, are there changes? Before Christ? Before my profession of faith? After? I look in the middle. Is there any changes going on? Not perfection. (coughs) Am I denying myself? Am I taking up the cross? Am I following Jesus? Now, I'm not naive. Some people do that better than others, right? But is that your goal? Is that your aim in life? Is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Is there a clear evidence that the gospel, that Jesus Himself has supernaturally impacted your life? Can I... Getting born again is something supernatural, folks. Do you realize that the God, the Creator of the universe, by His Spirit, comes into your dead life and awakens you to your sin and supernaturally changes your life? That's what God does to us when He saves us. That's amazing. Dead. Didn't care that we were dead. God, through His Spirit, awakens us and makes us alive and changes our life. Do you love and live the Word of God? What did James say? Don't be hearers only, but be doers. Do you live a life in fear of God? 
And I don't mean are you scared and crawling on the bed. And fear. Do you have a reverence and an awe and respect toward God? Does your mercy toward others reflect the grace of God to you? That's one to really think of. Does your mercy toward others reflect the grace of God to you? Or do you just throw those who make mistakes to the side and ignore them? Do we like to take people who just make mistakes and make a wreck of their life and we just like to throw them to the side and we don't show them any mercy, but we want God to show us mercy, right? Do your relationships, do your actions toward others reflect the love of God to you? Does your life reflect the desires of God? Holy living. Seeking to please Him. Does your life reflect the desires of God? And let me finish by saying this. James says this. I can sum it all up in this. And you're going, why didn't you just say that? We could have been out here a lot earlier. Christian, your life must show that you mean what you say when you say you believe. One more time. Christian, your life must show that you mean what you say when you say you believe. Let's pray.